with great pleasure and such admiration that I introduce my next guest, Stephanie Kuntz, who, you know, your book, uh, Marriage of History, found me in this really precarious time when I was trying to understand marriage. And I was 27 when I was engaged. And when I ended my engagement, I actually sort of went through this period where I was sort of angry at what I'd been taught about relationships. And I grew up as a a Catholic, and I, I often refer to myself as a recovering Catholic in that sense, in that I really wanted to understand marriage and relationships. And the story I'd been told growing up was you find someone, you know, in college or in your early 20s, and you marry them by 27, and you have kids by 30. And if you don't do that, you're sort of not part of the narrative that that we've all sort of subscribed to. And when I found your book, it was like a million little pieces went together of I knew there was more to this than what I've been seeing because I saw people getting divorced all around me. You know, people weren't staying in love forever. And it just finally made some things make sense where I didn't think I was crazy anymore. So you didn't know that like 13 years ago, (laughs) you had this guy who was going through a spiral who needed your book. So I appreciate that so much. I appreciate your writing and your work. Well, that's so gratifying to hear because that's the passion that drives my research is that people get told these things about the family that are not only historically inaccurate, which offends me as a historian, (laughs) but are really, really painful and destructive to the people who hear them, which offends me as a citizen. (laughs) So tell me, like, what is it that really fed the, because, you know, so much of your that that book that uh, when I read it, um, that struck me was just, I mean, you go into depth in so many examples of how marriage is different everywhere. <laughs> well, I started researching the families a long time ago before it was a respectable academic field. And I wrote a book called The Way We Never Were, American mm-hmm. Families and the Nostalgia Trap, which allowed me to take on some of the stuff that was being said in the political sphere, blaming uh, Americans for all the social problems that were in fact destabilizing their lives, but saying that their lives, their unstable lives were what were causing all of these social problems. So I, you know, my passion about the way that people were being told that, you know, to feel bad about choices they made or non-choices that that somebody else made uh, is dro- drove me to, to do that book. And then uh, it came out just as Dan Quayle made his famous Murphy Brown speech, blaming unwed, unwed mothers uh, for everything. And so I wow. became, I just sort of um, stumbled into becoming the press's flavor of the week to be the anti-quail to explain <laughs> oh, Leave it to Beaver was not a documentary and <laughs> we're not going back to it. And so the result was that I started doing a lot of writing and getting asked a lot of questions. And I realized that I didn't really know the answers to some of the questions I was being asked about marriage. Um, I'd gone through two different phases myself. I was I'm I'm old enough to have been raised when people used to say that marriage was invented to protect women. Uh, the women traded monogamous sex in in exchange for the men bringing home the meat that they hunted. And then we realized that actually in in hunting and gathering societies women collect 80% of the calories. And so then and we noticed that a lot of uh, marriages oppress women. So the next theory was that marriage was invented to 
oppress women. And I wasn't satisfied with both those. So I started really delving into it. And I worked for many years on it. You'll see, you saw, you've seen the footnotes in that book. Oh my gosh, and yeah. concluded that actually marriage was originally invented not because of anything to do with the relationship between the man and the woman, but to get in-laws. And that insight led me on a big uh, journey of research and writing that has been a lot of fun. <laughs> yeah. I mean, when you, I watched your, um, I mean, when I found your work, I wanted to consume everything that you had put out there. And I remember seeing your talk that you did with Pop Tech. Uh-huh. And uh, I remember you saying, you know, it, it was such a beautiful summary of your book, essentially saying that, you know, marriage <laughs> is invented to get more in-laws. And I mean, we all have had in-laws or have in-laws and know what that's like sometime. So, <laughs> you know, it was sort of like an odd irony, of course. Yeah, um, because nowadays we think of in-laws as interfering with the marriage, but <laughs> uh, that was, was the purpose of marriage. And I just have, uh, you know, it looks as though arranged marriages by in-laws or go back about 50,000 years at least. Um, and this is, this is how it started. You know, it's very different than, than love. It calls into question all of our assumptions about why people marry, why there's what, what sexual selection is involved. Cause actually you weren't choosing the gal because she was pretty. You were choosing the person that your parents. <laughs> yeah. Like you, I remember you saying that the, you know, you sort of married the person at the farm next door or you, married the person, you know, they kept rich people rich and poor people poor, that there was very much like or social structures embedded in that, like the caste system. Well, you know what's fascinating to me, and, and it gives me some hope that, that marriage can change in really progressive ways, is that when you go back to the earliest foraging societies, marriage was a way of sharing resources. You, um, the ancient word for wife in many languages, a peace weaver. It was the way that you made alliances. You, you made sure that band, other bands that you cooperated with, you would have relatives in them and you'd have obligations to them. Um, but once you began to, so for thousand, for, for several thousand years, that's what marriage was. It was a way of circulating resources and sharing obligations. But as societies began to get more complex, you know, and have stratified. Well, once when I'm in an early society, I can say, well, Mark, you know, if you were my son, you go ahead and marry anyone in that next band. That's that's no problem. But if I'm in the top 10 percent now of a stratified society, I don't want my daughter or son marrying anybody who's in less than the top 10 percent. And basically, I'd love them to be in the top 5 percent because that will enhance mm. my status. And at that point in history, marriage becomes a center of economic and political calculation for the upper classes, it's their way of, of forging military alliances, peace treaties, raising capital. For the middle classes, it's the most important kind of, you know, there's no banks or anything. That's how you how you raise money. It's how you get connections. And as you said, for the working classes, the lower classes, it's your, your primary way of recruiting for the labor face force. So if you're a baker, uh, the son of a baker, you marry the daughter of a baker because that will be your most important employee. Wow. It's it's fascinating because I'm sure everybody listening or most people listening to this have never even thought of all of these complexities of where this history comes from. And, you know, I know for me, when I used to hear the statement that marriage is broken, I once I had read your book, I was like, well, it's never really meant to be this mended, perfect thing that 
was to support such a destabilizing thing as love can sometimes be. That's right. That's right. You know, it's really only in the last 30, 40 years that we have tried to develop relationships on the basis that are free from coercion, uh, coercion by biology, coercion by parents, coercion by uh, laws uh, that, that, that say that one person in the relationship has to defer to another, coercion by economic dependence. So this is a whole new ball game. We've ne- it's not that we're doing marriage worse than our ancestors. We're trying to do something so much better that it's uncharted territory. We're having to break new ground. I love that, um, that demarcation of we're not doing it worse. It's just so different now. Yeah. It's so different. And I, I mean, I guess the, you know, what's required to make a very healthy relationship and marriage today is so different than what was required to hold one together for purely economic function. Oh, absolutely. I mean, it's been changing so much. I mean, for a long time, what you had and what kept marriages stable was that there that that men and women needed each other. You know, we have this myth about the male bread, the traditional male breadwinner family. Well, actually, through most of history, men and women worked together. Women wives were called uh, yoke mates, not not dependents. And when a man mm. said he was the sole provider, he wasn't boasting. He was complaining. He was <laughs> he was he, he was ask, actually usually asking for charity because his wife couldn't or wouldn't work beside him as he had, as he was counting on. So for a long time, the marriages were based upon like they were organized like they were a little workshop. And the man the man understood that he needed the labor of his wife. He didn't think he was supporting her, but he. He also, for that very reason, because he needed it, wanted to be the boss. And that kept marriages very stable because women didn't have much uh, alternative. And then when we first started, and we can come back to this, when when, when and why and, and what the implications were of first starting to marry for love, our initial draft of the love match, I, the way I think of it now, was very different than what we want now. It was on the idea that, well, if you marry for love, how will you get people to get married and stay married? Because of course, <laughs> once you t- talk about love, people are going to say, well, if there's no love, I ought to be able to leave the marriage. So the next kind of version of what marriage uh, should be was the idea that it should be based upon the union of opposites. That the only way you could get that men and women were so different. This was a, this was this is not traditional either. The men and women had such different needs and and values and skills that the only way you could get access to the resources and the skills and the knowledge of the others of the other sex was to marry that opposite, and that's what kept them together. But of course, that also had all sorts of contradictions because, you know, your opposite is certainly not going to be your best friend. So it's only recently that we've begun to develop this other ideal that you ought to be based on sharing. And I'll tell you, Mark, it's an exciting time to be a marriage and family researcher, but it's a challenging time to be in one because the rules for what makes a relationship work, what is a risk factor for divorce, they are changing Almost every year, they're changing so rapidly. So when you look historically, you know, and in, in, I, mean, I know from reading your book, you've gone far back. So it, for the people listening who aren't familiar with your work, how far back have you gone and looked at? <laughs> well, uh, more than 50,000 years. Uh, I really started wow. looking at the archaeological and ethnographic, um, not not ethnographic, but pale, um, paleontological 
uh, records of the earliest Paleolithic societies. And those are the ones I was talking about where you had these mobile bands that didn't have uh, settled uh, permanent uh, habitats, had very little private property, uh, just maybe the tools that they used, uh, did a lot of collective gathering and hunting. In fact, when you look at such, we can tell from the from the um, marks on the carcasses of, of, of mammoths and stuff that were killed, that they were cut up and then distributed to the group as a whole. It wasn't some hunter taking it just home for his family. And the scientists have figured out that actually that makes the most sense, that if you're killing something, someday you might not get it, someday you may, the best way is to share everything out because that, in a sort of pay it forward way. And that's the way that they collected food. And it's also the way they organized marriage, that you, you know, you send a wife or a husband to another group, they send it either back to you or sometimes, like with the Australians, a circle that takes five generations to complete. Uh, A sends to B, who sends to C, who sends to D, who sends to A. And so in these societies, it appears that marriage was really, as I said, this way of circulating resources and spreading kind of the wealth and sharing around. Later, marriage becomes a way of guarding your resources and accumulating them and saying we won't intermarry with anybody outside this this special um our own class and our own uh, social strata was any part of it about also um like i suppose you know when i think about it in the context of being able to share so it seems like it was quite collaborative for some time but what about for genetic diversity well i you know I'm, I'm, they didn't know enough about genes to oh, yeah. actually know uh, that the genetic diversity but they knew enough that they were reasonable human beings who learned that if you tried to keep everything in one place you wouldn't be able to have these connections with groups that lived in other uh, parts of the, the 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 territory you wouldn't be able to trade with them. You wouldn't be able to go and collaborate with them when there were big fish runs or uh, uh, migrations of animals that had to be killed by a whole bunch of people. So they learned not so much genetic diversity as social diversity, that Mm -hmm. it's so important to reach out to other people. Uh, At one point, Margaret Mead asked uh, a a society, a a tribe she was living with, well, why don't you marry your sister? And he, the guy that she asked said, well, then how would you ever uh, make connections? How would you ever get in-laws? How would you ever get relatives elsewhere? You know, who Hmm. who would you be able to cooperate with if you kept it all in the family? (laughs) Yeah, and such a a way of sharing knowledge, you Mm -hmm. know, sharing what one tribe has learned versus another and being able to share that in that sense. Absolutely. Historically, when you look through like, you know, 50,000 years, and I would, I don't know, like the transformation of how we related, was it more of like a slow evolution? And then, as you said, you know, each year it's sort of shifting now, but when do you start to see that rapid transformation in how we relate? Well, you know, it took, as as you say, many thousands of years. Um, um, but as you got more settled societies, and some there are some uh, very uh, persuasive writers who are arguing that the invention of agriculture was not the great benefit that we think that it was, uh, at least <laughs> initially, because it actually increased um, the work effort. 
And because, especially where there were grains that could be stored, it increased the incentive of people to bring in more workers to work on it. And uh, women, for example, who uh, ground the grain, they, we find that they, they, they just recently found uh, the University of Cambridge studies that this, um, those Neolithic women had muscles uh, that were much more developed than even the most highly elite rowers today who, who uh, you know, trained wow. you know, 100, uh, 100 miles a week. And that's because they were grinding the grain. Well, that gives the incentive if they're the possibility of hoarding grains and surplus and the incentive to enslave others to to do that. Uh, so then you begin to get these kinds of differences of, of wealth and status uh, in societies. And as you get finally the development of states who can organize tax collection and, sla- and enslavement of others, uh, then marriage turns into this you know, as I said, this center of intrigue, you know, I, it's so funny. I'm always reading these stories that you know, a few years ago, there was this bestseller about the romance of Anthony and Cleopatra. And I have to say, I just kind of snorted. Uh, <laughs> Anthony and Cleopatra was so not a love story. I mean, they may have had sex and it may have been exciting sex, but it was about <laughs> politics, you know, they were the two greatest empires in the world. First, she tries to hook up with um, first, she she turns upon her co-ruler, her half-brother, who she was supposed to be ruling Egypt with. When Caesar comes to make peace, she uh, seduces him, or he her. She bears a child that she, you know, he doesn't leave his wife for her, but she bears a child whom she names Caesarian to make sure that she's show, telling everybody, I have a child who has um, a claim to the to to the rulership of Rome, uh, and then after Caesar dies, she hooks up with Mark Anthony, who is battling the triumvirate that that took power after Caesar's death, and they two begin this dalliance. Anthony goes back and forth. He actually goes home and marries the sister of his rival, again, for political reasons. Cleopatra doesn't seem to have any trouble with that. Uh, But eight years later, he decides he's not going to get what he wants from that marriage, and he formally commits. um, Meanwhile, they've already had twins, him and and Cleopatra, and they decide that they're going to go for broke and claim uh, the throne, claim the, the mantle, and that because Caesarian, the son, is too young to rule, that they will kindly rule in his place. So this was a great big power play, all these marriages. <laughs> yeah, to see how they're all such a dance and such a political strategic move, each one, and not to mention a high level of uh, strategy by oh, Cleopatra. Yeah. I, I know she is not, she's ref- uh, in the book, The Art of Seduction, she's referenced quite a bit, um, talking about her ability to seduce and maneuver. Yes, um, but I think that you know the Greeks. It's it's interesting. Um, Greeks used. To, you know how we often think that uh, the Freudians will tell you that that if you dream about you know almost anything, it's really a dream about sex. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Right. Well, the Greeks used to think that if you dreamed about sex, you were really dreaming about power, about political power, and that you know Cleopatra was a political seductress, not just a sexual one. It's amazing to see how the different lenses based on the times and the narratives that we're sort of supporting culturally or, or looking for reasons to support culturally or historically. Yes. Um, and then the lenses through which we, we sort of uh, create stories about things like, you know, your first book or, or sorry, not your first book, but the way thing we never were 
Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I was going to say that was my first book that wasn't um, so pompous that you want to just call, call it as pompous as you want to be. But my first book was written for other academics, you know, to prove myself. And now I'm much more interested in taking the research that I do and explaining it to to um, you know to the public and talking to them, you know, uh, just like we're talking now. <laughs> Well, and I think it's so important because people are left with so many gaps in the story of this sort of story about marriage doesn't make sense. And it's without all of the information that you fill in. You know, I think, you know, if we're looking at sort of like systems being, you know, put into place for certain reasons and there a lack of information being strategically not provided, you know, is when I even when we look at the history of monogamy and you know, in your book, that that does, and I'm sure you get asked this a ton, but when do you see historically monogamy and polyamory and how does that show up or where do you see the evolution of such strict monogamy as has, you know, recently been challenged, but of course lived for a certain period of time? Mm-hmm. Well, you know, there's a lot of variation. Um, societies have had different kinds of approaches to this, but in most societies, most uh, I think most couples have tended to live together pretty monogamously. However, uh, in once you got any kind of stratification in society, uh, the preferred form of marriage, uh, what was only available to a few, was a polygyny, uh, one man and several women. Uh, there are well, there are at least fifty societies we know of where uh, one woman could marry several men, sometimes several brothers. And there are plenty of societies that totally tolerate extramarital sex. Um, monogamy becomes a uh, very important uh, in first. I, I think it first becomes important uh, uh, to the upper classes of society, where, as the Greeks put it, you don't want someone else's uh, seed to be uh, uh, put into the furrow that you've plowed. In other words, you don't want to have uh, if your wife is uh, has a child by another man that man's family potentially has a claim on your land and wealth. And so monogamy for women began to be enforced very, very strictly. It was not enforced strictly for men at all. I've, I've read as late as the 18th uh, century uh, uh, men's diaries and, and letters talking to their brother-in-law or their father-in-law about, you know, a likely wench they had just rogered uh, or complaining about getting the pox from someone. And when the women and, and the brother-in-law, you know, was just like, oh, it's all men. We all expect to do this. That's what men do. Yeah, yeah exactly. So actually, uh, despite the fact that we are now beginning to be more tolerant of consensual extra relationship or extramarital sex, we actually ha- have a stronger, stronger condemnation of non-consensual, non-monogamy uh, that is than, than for men than I think probably ever before in history. Which seems to be sort of now was the idea of it being more acceptable for the man is, is based on the child being able to have rights to what is inherited or what is owned? Well, the, the the man, of course, isn't going to bear a child, so he's yeah. not that way. And then, of course, you had the – so it was much easier for men to have affairs without it interfering with the line of succession and the property. 
Um, there are societies where women, um, where women are allowed to have affairs. One of the most interesting examples of the tremendous cultural variability in our ideas about these things are a couple, several uh, small-scale societies in Latin America, such as the Bari of Venezuela, who believe in partable uh, heredity, and that is that anybody they believe that anyone who sleeps with a, with a woman while she is pregnant contributes something of himself to his child to the child and so when a woman uh, gives birth the midwife would go and say well who are the fathers and so she would tell if she had slept with more than one uh, you know more than her own husband now and then the midwife would go to him to the other men and say you have become a father now you know, in our society, that's, you know, a Jerry Springer show, right? With people <laughs> totally. at each other. But in those societies, the men took that responsibility so seriously that the child born to someone who had supposedly two or three fathers was twice as likely to live to adulthood because they contributed uh, part of their, their fishing and their hunting to that child. So there's tremendous variability here. Yeah, and in the cases of, um, from what I understand, I heard this, and I didn't actually check the research on it, so you you would know, in societies that are polyg- that um, are polygamist, where the man is the one who's marrying multiple wives, I uh, I heard someone quote references and research to the idea that almost all of those societies eventually become violent because a few men get all of the partners. Well. They do if they get to the point that um, that it really is a huge scarcity uh, of women. But we know of many societies that have existed that way for a long time. And what they do is it's just another way of controlling not just women, but young men, so that young men have to go to the older men to get permission or to earn permission to get wives. Uh, in most societies that are polygynous, however, it, you know, it's only a, a few that are, are polygynous, uh, and it doesn't necessarily lead to huge amounts of violence, but it, it certainly does have that potential. And I, in your book, I'm not sure I'll remember the details, but I remember reading about a society where, and I thought it was interesting because it challenged the sexual norms of even how we frame, we view women who are open sexually, about when a woman turns a certain age that, I'm, I'm not sure if I'm remembering this correctly, but like a door is built to the outsider. Where where men can come visit and she is encouraged to be sexual. Well, Am I remembering I don't remember this. Remember that door either. <laughs> but there are Maybe it wasn't a door. There was like an encouragement of. Well, there, there are a couple of societies that I enumerate, and um, I can't remember the name right now because they're hard to pronounce. But a couple of them that do encourage women to have uh, premarital affairs uh, or even extramarital affairs while they're young. Uh, and it creates a bond then between – it creates almost an in-law bond uh, doing this. So as you say, there's tremendous variability. You know, people often ask me, you know, are we naturally monogamous? Are we naturally um, polyamorous? Um, you know, I would say that, you know, we human beings have both – of these desires and, you know, different societies encourage or try to suppress one or more of them. But every society struggles with the ambivalence about those. And we solve that ambivalence in different ways. Yeah. When, yeah, isn't that the truth that there, I mean, the sort of like 
if you're not following the cultural narrative, then you're going to experience shaming, you're going to experience judgment, you're going to experience whatever it is. And that's why it is such a courageous act to go against anything, you know, that's outside the norm or outside of what we were taught, because you're going to even divorce as a, you know, as a, as an experience or a life choice is often met with, you know, I've sort of found that there's sort of a hierarchy within relationships in how we we see them as in, you know, if you're married, you're seen as better than someone who's engaged. And if you're engaged, you're better than someone who's dating. And if you're dating, you're better than someone, God forbid, who's single, who has some, you know, because we ask questions like, why are you single? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's interesting that's changing a lot. And one of, I think, the mo- very interesting things about the progress of our changing ideas about gender is that people have begun to recognize that marriage was a worse deal for women for a long time than it was for men, Mm -hmm. (laughs) Uh, which is why two thirds of divorces are initiated by, by women. And so I think there's more acceptance now of a woman being sing- single when she's in her forties uh, or so than there is of a man that, that, you know, the other side is there's, there's sexism about men too. And one of the sexist stereotypes about men is that they're not good at caregiving. They're not good at caring. And therefore if they're single, it's because there's something lacking in them that women have said, okay, they, they they're not, um, they're not good matches for me. So I think there's actually in some ways, beginning to be more prejudice against older single men than there than there is now against older single women, which is a real turnaround for most of history. Yeah, I see a lot of like one narrative that I find fascinating is often, uh, you know, I'm generalizing, but when a woman leaves a relationship, she's seen as empowered. And then when a man leaves one, he's seen as uh, like, he's afraid of commitment, he gave up, he's Peter Pan. Right. And of course, I'm, I'm generalizing, but I, I find that those are interesting that you know, even the roles that people can take within relationship for men, as you said, are are, are very different um, as where for women, at least in some parts of the world, not all are being, you know, sort of inspired to take on different roles, yeah. which of course challenges the man's role in the relationship. If like I, I work with so many people whose partners are, are threatened or have a hard time, at least on a subconscious level, appreciating that their female partner makes more money than them or is the provider. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I think that has been, you know, it's one of the sad things about the specialized opposite version of the love match that we talked about. And it, it, what it did to both men and women is it gave them this, this notion that the only way they could be attractive to the other sex was by having a monopoly of certain kind of skills. Uh, so that women, uh, had to be really good at caregiving and loving and this sort of thing. And we see this now one of the, one of the kind of holdovers of that is that women still do what sociologists call gatekeeping. You know, we say that we want the guy to help out, to help at home or to share at home, but actually sometimes we only want him to help out. We still want to keep the expertise so that we say, you know, we'll tell you what to do and you be our unskilled assistant. I've been studying this sort of thing for for so many years, but you know, just a couple of years ago, my husband walked in and I was restacking the dishwasher (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and he pointed at me and yet gatekeeping, gatekeeping. And, <laughs> and why the hell should I ever stack the dishwasher if you're going to redo it? So women you know, <laughs> and men have been told uh, for, for 
for the last 200 years that they need to protect and provide and explain. I'm actually a more more sympathetic than many of most of my feminist friends to mansplaining because I think, well, that's what they were told they had to do to, to show their love. And so we all, we both have to work with these kinds of uh, hangups that we've got, but I can tell you some good news. And that is, this is really changing. Men are becoming much less threatened Uh, as late as the 1980s. When a woman earned more than her husband, this was a threat. uh, This was a bigger risk for divorce. And today it is not that risk has disappeared. Um, So we are seeing progress uh, on both sides, women more willing to accept a man who doesn't earn more than they do, um, and more willing to really share the expertise at home. For example, one of the things that makes men happiest in a relationship is when they share shopping, either split it up or, or actually do it together, rather than either doing all of it themselves or the woman doing all of it themselves. And I think that that's because there's a certain trust that is involved that says, I trust you <laughs> to make them <laughs> to make good, good decisions in our shopping together. Yes, yes. Um, that's fascinating. And it, it seems to be bringing in such a collaborative approach that what I find interesting in having, you know, I'm 40 now and working with so many people who are much younger than me and then also working with people who are much older and observing my parents, observing my my relatives and and friends, parents and all that kind of stuff. And really seeing this interesting clash being in the middle mm-hmm. in some sense, or even people much younger than than myself, that there's these gender roles or these biological drives um, that are sort of socialized into us that that are in conflict with what we, how to be in a collaborative, you know, a monogamish or whatever type of relationship or probably, it doesn't really matter, but that in order to be in a successful one, we have to learn how to let go of some of these engendered ideas. Absolutely. I mean, you know, let me give you an example from women. Just as I said, men were socialized to feel that they had to provide, protect, explain, be, you know, women were socialized to think that they had to uh, turn to someone who was older, wiser, uh, smarter, had more uh, knowledge, had more resources, and who was essentially foreign to them, uh, dangerous. And from, you know, from Jane Eyre to Fifty Shades of Grey, you see this attraction, you know, women confusing anxiety or even fear yeah. uh, with attraction. With and butterflies, yeah. just as you said, this is not what makes for a good relationship, uh, at least anymore. And and there's some wonderful news about this, Mark. I, I, I don't know if you... I'm excited, whatever you're about to say. It is good. Um, Another one of these really interesting changes in what makes for a good relationship. Um, About five years ago, there was a a study that uh, showed that was kind of discouraging to people who believed in gender equality. It seemed to show that based upon longitudinal study data gathered in 1991 and 92, it showed that Couples who were in very traditional marriages where the men did most of the breadwinning and the women did uh, almost all of the housework and the childcare, they said that they were happier and they had more sex and better sex lives than couples who had a less traditional division mm. of labor. So a lot of us said, well, now wait a minute, 91, 92, that would be marriages formed in the 70s and 80s when non traditional ideas were 
far less popular and more stigmatized. So some researchers got together and they just confined their analysis to marriages formed since the early 1990s, and they find the opposite that uh, the it's only a third of the couples they studied were really egalitarian in terms of sharing things, but those were the couples who reported the highest satisfaction uh, maritally and sexually, and the only couples who were having more sex than their counterparts uh, 20 years earlier. So we are changing, mm. and uh, we are changing, but, you know, it is a, it's, we're still struggling with these old tapes that, you know, we're just hammered into us. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, for, and that's so beautiful to hear because I'm sure the people who are either in marriages or, or looking to create whatever sort of relationship they want to create that they don't have to, you know, go back to what, you know, because I think the challenge then becomes you have like your, your parents or your grandparents or whatever, reinforcing these cultural narratives with the questions they ask and the judgments they make. And, you know, you're 30, you're expiring now, you know, those types of things where it's like, you haven't found anyone yet. You should just give up. And it's like, no, there's, I mean, the success, uh, the research that I've read on um, divorce is that the rate of divorce gets much lower as we marry much older, you know, from 25 and higher. Absolutely. Um, a friend of a colleague of mine in the Council on Contemporary Families uh, did a study and showed that for women, uh, every year that they postpone divorce, uh, that they postpone marriage, their divorce rate goes down. There's one little tick up between about between those who marry between about age 35 and 37. But then again, the risk of divorce for those who marry o- older ages than that goes down again. And um, uh, he, he he suspects. I don't remember whether he suspects or I suspect, but at any rate, we, we <laughs> suspect that some of it has to do with people who marry, women who marry at age 35 or 37 to 37 are often marrying men who have kids, um, young kids from other relationships, and that might account for the slightly greater uptick there. But yeah, it's it's true that the divorce rates falls as, as you age um, at the age of marriage, and the age of marriage is becoming much more spread out. Many, many people used to be, boy, if you didn't get married within five or six years of the average age of marriage, you might never marry. But now people are marrying for the first time in their 40s, their 50s, even in their 60s. Uh, So uh, that's beautiful. Really an interesting thing. Yeah. And, you know, it's in my own relationship, we've been together three years and it's interesting to know that, you know, to have explored the things I know, to have explored the narratives that I understand that play in my head and to have, you know, like a, a mom who came directly from Ireland, you know, and all these different past cultural experiences and to still be like, know that I could not get married and my life would be fine. But there'd be this like tape that's like, yeah, but, you know, to validate the relationship to, you know, it means you're really committing. And it's interesting to be able to dance on both sides and observe my own biological drive to want to be approved of, to want to um, do the right thing, so to speak. Right, right. Yeah, and with um, I, in I know you talk about uh, a little bit about um, feminism, and I know is it your most recent book that that discusses you know the 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 American woman, right? Oh, yeah, yeah. My my most recent book was called A Strange Stirring: The Feminine Mystique in American Women at the Dawn of the Sixties, and I studied. Um, many women, I did interviews with many women and men who read Betty Friedan's The Feminine Mystique and tried to figure out 
what appealed to them about it. Because today when I reread it, you know, I, it's, it's, you know, it's like, duh, <laughs> it's not particularly uh-huh. inspiring. Um, but in, in trying to figure out why people like my mother were so taken with this book, I really had to do an in-depth study of what marriages were like in the 50s and 60s. And it was an eye-opener, even for a historian who didn't have many illusions to start with. Yeah. And, and what were some of the, I guess, most troubling or most, um, like the things that sort of caught you off the most? Well, you know, there's a whole galaxy, but I can give you, uh, I'll give you just a cute few examples. This was the time period where there was help wanted female, help wanted male, and the help wanted female ads could say things and did say things like, uh, you must be really beautiful, you know, pretty cheerful. Um, And the help wanted male, of course, were the jobs that had opportunities for promotion. This was a time period when most states had head and master laws, saying reserving most decisions uh, to the husband when there was no such thing as marital rape because uh, rape was defined as forcible Uh sexual intercourse with someone other than your wife. But I'll tell you the one that really got to me the most um, because I hadn't heard any, I was doing all this research and I hadn't run across any instances, any discussion of domestic violence. And then I found this big article about domestic violence in a journal supported by the American Medical Association. Hmm. And it started by describing all of these instances with about 30 women and the patterns. And as I read it, you know, the patterns are the same as they were today, that the abuse had gone on for years and years and years, and often only came to light when a child, especially a teenage boy, tried to intervene. And so I was thinking to myself, oh, well, I'm, you know, I've, I've misjudged them. They did know about this, and they're, they're thinking about it. Then I turned the page, and my jaw dropped, because the next sentence was, and this intervention disturbed a marital equilibrium that had been working more or less satisfactorily. Whoa. I went like, what? And what they meant was, okay, well, the violence was because the women were too assertive. And the men were, you know, emasculated by that. And when the men hit the women, the men felt better. And the women did too, because they felt that they had a real man for a husband. I was just like, oh, Oh my God. (laughs) Jinx, jinx on a Coke. (laughs) Right. And you think just like, the children who read that, the, I just think of all the inherited information that comes from that, the patterns of families, the, I did this talk on sex and sexuality and I was researching the messaging that women received in the 1940s and thirties and fifties. And, you know, the ads from that time are just atrocious mm-hmm. and, you know, very much like what you're talking about with your, um, with the research that you did. And one of the things that really caught me off was, um, some, training and feedback from the American College of Psychiatry and Psychology. Uh-huh. And it was saying that if there is a sexless marriage in the 19, you know, let's just say 50s, 40s, around that time, that one should not allow the wife or sorry, one should not let the husband leave thinking it's his fault. <laughs> and the other side was, and this was a clipping from a training manual or like a, a, a textbook. And the other side was saying that make sure the woman knows that if she leaves the relationship, her sexual dysfunction will follow her. It's her. Wow. And I was like, uh, knowing all the stuff I knew about, you know, desire and response of desire and all that stuff. I was just like, Oh my gosh, this is so awful. Yeah. Like just the messaging. And and then I think of just today, um, how much courage just from a biological sense it takes for 
anyone in those situations, but especially women to use their voice. Yes. And, but yeah. And, and, you know, when we think about the Me Too movement, you know, um, I, I, this isn't to, to give anybody ex, any excuses, but it's important to remember that right up through the 50s and 60s, advice books were telling women to, even if when they wanted sex, to pretend they didn't, and telling men that women invariably were, had to tell to pretend that they didn't want it. And so you should continue at least until you got a slap in the face. I mean, literally, that's, that, was a, that was a statement in one uh, advice book for young men. That is just like, it's just mind blowing. I just watched the uh, documentary uh, series on Netflix called American Circumcision. Mm-hmm. And the same sort of narratives of, of, of the reasons why we do it and just how, you know, it's sort of like tr- tribal ritual hidden in medicine now. Oh, and it's just so, yeah, it's just so fascinating. It was a very fascinating documentary, but interesting to know, like the narratives that we receive even about like, yeah, what, what a woman is supposed to be like sexually that she's supposed to not want it. But then if she is sexual, she's considered a slut. And then, and then, yeah. And then of course, nowadays uh, you get this, this pornography and stuff that suggests that a woman is instantly receptive. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. You don't have to light a candle and put some music on. It's just supposed to, you just deliver pizza and everything's fine. You know, it's a, yeah. and And, you know, just, I know that we're getting close to time, one thing I wanted to ask is, how do you think then, and I'm again, I'm sure you get asked this all the time, but how do you think then that the the effects of technology have influenced in, in maybe both a negative, but, you know, also a positive way in how we marry, how we relate? Mm-hmm. Well, there are some real positive things. Uh, for example, for the age group over 50, social media has been a tremendous invention because it's the way that you can meet people. And um, But even for young younger people, you know, it used to be in the, in the 1950s uh, and early 60s, a couple married uh, after knowing each other for only six months, and they usually met through either their neighborhood or through school. Uh, and then in the 70s, you started meeting through uh, work. But work situations were, uh, you know, the, the women were uh, likely to quit work still uh, after after uh, marrying. Uh, nowadays, you, we don't meet in school because you're not marrying till your way out of school. Work relationships are not very uh you know, that's kind of dangerous ground because now you're both peers and you're both going to be there for a while. So it can be very awkward. So how do you meet people? Uh, and of course, the, the matchmaking, the social media is is very important that way. And while it can tempt some people into sort of not being able to choose because there's too many choices to choose, um, for those people who do manage to get past it, it now looks like the research suggests that marriages formed out of these uh, dating sites are actually more stable than marriages uh, formed in more traditional ways. So mm. there's that. That's positive, I think. It's also positive that men and women can keep in touch with each other, can text, you know, can, you know, have these even when they're away from each other. On the other hand, there's obviously some issues with it, especially for young teens who kind of substitute this, this, um, texting for face-to-face 
um, conversations and lose, I think, some really important parts of life, not only with their intimate relations and their friends, but also with strangers. I've been doing some research recently that has really impressed me about how important our friendly interactions with people who are not intimates, who, you know, just they're either strangers or the people we see regularly, like somebody who you, you, pick, you buy a newspaper from or you get coffee from. Mm-hmm. The You have a friendly face-to-face interaction with them, and it improves your people's mood for a week. Wow. Um, and we're losing that with these, you know, drones delivering things and always looking <laughs> at our text, you know, yeah. texting um, and, instead of interacting with people. It, these, you know... When when we marriage advisors like John Gottman talk about how important it is in couple relationships to respond to uh, your partner's bids for connection, but I'm now beginning to think that it's really important to respond to uh, strangers' bids for connection and to make those bids for connection yourself because they really improve your ability to uh, function socially and your own personal sense of well-being. What do you think the difference is from a developmental perspective or just a psychological perspective between, you know, the benefit that our partner or our friends or our parents or whatever respond to our bids versus what you gain from a stranger? Well, I mean, the gain from the stranger is, I think, it 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 it, it leads to a sense of trust, a sense mm. that the world is a friendly place. You know, mm, yeah. that's, that's different. It doesn't have to do when, when, we're, when it's our partner, it's the way of renewing the relationship. It's a way of deepening it, of, you know, understanding that you're responding, you're not just blowing them off. And I think that's a very important part of the relationship. I think the bids for attention or connection from strangers do something else. They don't necessarily enhance or deepen that relationship with the stranger, but they do, I think, enhance your sense that you are living in a community. You're living in something Mm. bigger than your own personal relationship, and you don't have to just get everything from that, that you can get sustenance from other people, even if they're not intimates. What a uh, beautiful thought that, you know, whatever you're, like we have a sort of dopamine reward for the community we think we really have on our phone. Not to say that we don't have community on our phone, but it's not cellular. It's not in this space. We're not, our neurons aren't firing together. There's not an energetic exchange or experience. And what a beautiful way to uh, to close this, to just inspire people to be that for someone else and maybe put our phones down when we're walking around. I started to ask for directions again because I was, I was yes. just seeing at how much, a stranger, I was in New York and I mean, New Yorkers are the best if, if you're, if you cut to the chase, if you don't get too fluffy, but. Well, do you mind, do we have time for me to tell one story? Yes, yes, absolutely. Because when, as you know, when I was started to do this research, I suddenly remembered that uh, something that happened to me back in the seventies in New York, um, but that has stuck with me for years. Uh, it was a totally worldless exchange. I was going across Grand Central Station, and I saw two policemen struggling with a black woman. And I stopped uh, to look to see what was happening. Were they being abusive? 
what was happening. So I stopped and, and watched uh, to see if this was something that I needed to intervene in, you know, no, no matter how ineffectually <laughs> I to yell at them. Uh, and it was clear that she was crazy and acting out, maybe going to hurt herself. And they were just trying to get her under control. So when I looked, then I looked across and across about 20 yards away from me was this black man in a three-piece suit who had also stopped to watch. And it just kind of, we, we met each other's eyes and we smiled and nodded and we never exchanged a word, but we went on. And I don't know about him, but me, I just felt so connected to him because we had both had that same reaction to stop and think about it. And it's still something that I can, I remember vividly what he looks like. That feeling of, of both care and concern, that feeling yeah. of, yeah. It, despite color, despite gender, despite everything. Yeah. That's so wonderful. And I'm constantly reminded, you know, of, of just how important it is to just, just to connect, you know, like the research, it's pretty clear that the greatest predictor of our health in the long run is the quality of our relationships. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and our friendships, uh, not just our relatives, but our friendships um, are very important as we age. Yeah. Yeah. And what a skill set to be able to cultivate. I encourage everyone who's listening, I encourage you to pick up marriage of history. If you are curious, if you are, if you want to understand it even in more depth, it's such a fabulous book. It, honestly, Stephanie, it, it really did change my life because I finally felt like I, I understood in some sense. Well, that's, that's a wonderful thing to hear. Thank you. And it was such a part of like, you know, I, when my engagement ended, I just made it my mission to understand relationships. And I wanted to then, you know, of course, as I think with all our work, it's like I went to heal myself and then saw that other people might want some of the stuff I was learning. So I'm so grateful to be able to have you on my podcast. The fact that podcasts exist are a great (laughs) um, benefit of technology. It is a great benefit. (laughs) And um, I encourage people to check out any of your talks. I mean, your talks are so wonderful. You talk a lot about the the bids, the in-laws, and I've just garnered so much knowledge from you. So I really appreciate you coming on today and sharing all of this amazing work that you've managed to assimilate and create these really beautiful opportunities for us to be able to take this research that is filled with so much information and just just sort of distill it into exactly the answers we need. So thank well, you. Well, you're you're a joy to talk with. So so this was fun for me. Thanks. Well, I will be bringing you back for sure if I can. Oh, well, that would be that would be great. I'd enjoy it. Um, and for people to find you, uh, your website. Um, yes, it's just stephaniekuntz.com. I'll link that out. Is there any other places to find you? Actually, Facebook is, uh, I have a, you don't have to be friends with me. In fact, I you can't be friends. It's a Facebook that one of my students put up for me many years ago. Before oh, that's I great. Knew about it. But now I, I actually know how to put stuff on it. So I've, I put articles uh, uh, that I've written every time I do it. I post them on Facebook and, and, uh, and other stuff that is interesting me. Uh, and I have that pop tech video up there now, I think. So. Well, I'll be sure to share it in all these links in the show notes so everyone can find you. And thank you so much. I really appreciate you being on today. Well, thank you. It's been a pleasure. <laughs>